Welcome to the London Horror Movie Club, where each episode I try to convince you to watch one of the weird, wild, and wonderful horror films set in London. Season 2 is all about terror on the underground. Do you remember your first time on the London Underground? I come from a little southern university town in the States. Our idea of public transportation was carpooling. I think we had one bus that went to the mall. So when I first moved to London, I was nervous about using the tube. I was afraid of getting lost down there. The London Underground is vast. There were too many lines, too many stations and interchanges, and you could get something wrong on each of them. Westbound, northbound, southbound, how was I to know which way to go when I couldn't use the sun to tell direction? It seemed impossible not to get lost. When I first moved there, I spent at least 15 minutes going over any journey. I planned it so I could use only one line, even if it meant walking for 40 minutes. And if disaster struck and I absolutely had to change lines, I'd go over and over in my head till I had it memorized. Which line, which direction, and what was the final destination on the train going to be? With time, of course, all that's changed. I now feel comfortable jumping lines, zooming on the DLR. I even have my favorite stations. During the London Olympics, I prided myself on diverting the busiest stations and using the lines that tourists avoided. But for all my experience, I've probably only seen about 40 or 50% of the stops. And there's more I'll never get to see. There are old postal lines, disused stations and part-dug tunnels scattered across the city. There are offshoots for cleaning, drainage, and things I can't even imagine. Those of us who think we've traveled every London Underground station have only ever seen what the public is allowed to safely visit. These hidden corners of our underground beg for us to consider what we've left buried and forgotten, and if it will ever come back to haunt us. One answer is the 1972 Deathline, this month's film. Deathline imagines a dwindling race of cannibals in the arches of the disused tube, and hidden though they are, they reach out for victims in the quiet platforms of the first and last trains. Beyond the disused British Museum station are nameless man and woman. Those are the names they're given in the credits. They live primitively, as we might imagine cavemen did, and in a dark, wet cavern carved out of the sides of the platform, we see little pieces of their life, almost normally domestic, but equally rotting and decayed. The only words they've ever heard are mind the doors, and they survive on the blood and flesh of wayward commuters, and the tiny pieces of light they can eke out of various different lanterns. These cannibals aren't monsters, they're relics of the past. A century earlier, workers expanding the station were trapped when a tunnel collapsed. The company who hired them decided they would not rescue their own workers because it would be far too expensive, and so left them to die. Many did, but few managed to procreate, and men and women are their descendants. Both of them look like the descendants of inbreeding in a harsh environment, visible sores on their bodies, and living very difficultly. And woman, in particular, she's pregnant, is dying. 
with this history, man's hunting journeys out to Russell Square Station where he snatches up commuters are seen as a violent return of a repressed past. This is the past returning onto the station to kill those who left them for dead. And in what I think is one of the greatest aspects of this film, it's also a form of social revenge. Early on in the film, you watch man feed his dying wife the blood of one victim who's obviously fairly well off from what we've seen of him. For example, he's wearing a little bowler, pat, bowler hat, sorry, he's dressed very nattily. And this victim, as he's killed, we have some sympathy for him, but when the wife's being fed, there's some aspect of it that's upsetting, but it also recalls Rousseau's quip that when the poor have nothing else to eat, they'll eat the rich. Man doesn't exactly have a whole lot of other options. And we can't help but have sympathy for man when he cries out at the death of his wife. We're all too aware of how lonely his life and his fate is and how it's been caused by the society that literally lives above him. This twisted world of amorality is only heightened by those we see living above ground. Man's first victim, who I've just alluded to, James Manfred OBE is a scoundrel in his own right, and it's important that he's referred to throughout the film by his OBE. He's meant to be a sort of superior member of society, awarded for what he's done for Britain. And yet when we first see him, he's roaming the streets of Soho in search of a prostitute before he moves underground to proposition a woman simply on her way home. He feels that money gives him the right to buy her body at least before she kicks him and runs off on the next train. Later, Man's captured him for food, and even after he's died, we discover more about Manfred. And he's something of a social cannibal. Detective Calhoun discovers a hidden room in Manfred's house with recording and video equipment set up to monitor an adjacent bedroom. Today, there's the obvious and eerie parallel with Jeffrey Epstein's house, but even at the time, you get the sense that Manfred is preying on others and consuming their bodies in sexual power games. It's a different kind of cannibal, but it's the same nonetheless. And if that doesn't make you parallel him with man, Manfred is certainly no better than the company that abandoned man's ancestors, thinking of the poor as something he can buy and sell as commodities rather than people. Both Mann and Manfred are shown to be morally muddy throughout the film. Neither is ever considered a hero. But so is everyone. Each character in the film has its own moral flaws. Even the supposed hero, a student named Alex, is taunted by police detectives who should be there to help him. And then he turns brutal when faced with Mann, beating the crippled and crying creature nearly to death. The real horror of this film is not just man, but what he represents, humanity. We're all just a moment, an experience, or a confrontation away from being monsters, if we aren't already. Now, if that description isn't enough to make you want to watch this amazing film, let's dive into really what the movie club theme is. What fears does the underground really add? So the London Underground is obviously the main space of the film. We do see lives above and below ground. But it's very important, that distinction, as I've already talked about. You get lots of parallels between man living underground and the world above. 
really asking, you know, how different one is from another and how different the people it produces are from one another. But the underground itself is also a really fantastically used space in the film. Visually, it adds, you know, shadowy caves, hidden corners, Pockets of the underground have been sort of carved out, so you see this almost weeping mud because of the damp, and it creates a really gothic ambiance to the film. This is definitely a place that is creepy, and it makes the most of the shadows, the tunnels, the things that you can't see or can almost see. And by setting the film on the underground, Deathline also makes reality of everyday commute into a dangerous and threatening experience. At the start of the film, Manfred's attacked and left on the stairs. Dozens of people simply walk by him, ignoring the dying man. He hasn't actually died yet, and he, at this point he could be saved, but our indifference as commuters just walking by him shows how dangerous this place could be. Have you ever been sick on the underground? Have you ever felt faint? Did you feel like your commuters would help you, or did you seem desperate to get out of the station? I once had a small experience like this. I started feeling faint on the underground. And actually, I didn't expect anyone to be lovely, but I, I managed to get myself off the train and onto one of those little like seated benches on the side. And honestly, hundreds of people walked past me. I can't say I blame them. It was, it was the morning commute. But someone actually stopped and helped me out of the station. I was amazed, but I probably shouldn't have been amazed. And th that scene in this film, in Deathline, at the very beginning shows you the sort of real potential dangers of being amazed that somebody would help you and expecting people to walk by you. We, we do have a, a necessary callousness to the commute on the underground where we detach ourselves from other people. We become almost inhuman or we see other people as inhuman. This is just a small example, but aspects of this everyday quality of the two becoming creepy, dangerous, eerie, or unsettling is done beautifully by Gary Sherman, the director of this film. You also have great use of the split-second timing of the two, but adds tension throughout the film. Towards the climax of the film, sympathetic university student Patricia, who I would argue is probably the most morally, um, pure isn't right, but just at least the most morally what we'd like to think of ourselves, ideal, let's say. Patricia is separated from her boyfriend Alex by the timing of the tube. The tube doors close between them. This is something probably all of us who commute on the tube are used to. You jump through the train doors at the last minute as they're closing, or maybe somebody does ahead of you and you just miss the train. This fairly normal occurrence becomes dangerous because once the, the train zooms off, Patricia's now easy bait for man. She's been left alone on a deserted platform. And so, of course, she becomes a victim. Now, I won't give away what happens to Patricia specifically, but you know from the minute that train door closes that she's in danger.
And I'll end now with my favorite moment that, like last time, is a bit of a spoiler. So if you don't want to ruin it, you know, take, turn, your, turn your podcast off now and watch the film. This film is beautifully acted. I think one of the things I love about it is that it shows how great and how powerful horror films can be when you rely heavily on the actors and the character as well as direction. But my favorite moment is actually a heart-wrenching moment rather than a scary one. When Man at the end of the film is attacked by Alex, who's trying to save Patricia, you get this really incredible moment of acting where Alex is fighting and then dominates Man. And he starts to just kick him literally when he's down. He's curled up almost in the fetal position. And Man starts crying out the only words he knows to try and reach out in some way to the humanity in this person, almost begging him to stop using the three words, mind the doors. Other people have written about this scene, I'm sure, because it is a really powerful acting moment because he only has these three words and he moves through rage, anger, fear, desperation, and then a plea for his life. It is incredible acting. I am very surprised it didn't get some kind of award. It absolutely deserved it. And it, it ends the film in such a way that you, you don't feel comforted because there is no clear good and bad guy. And I think that makes it an amazing film of any kind, but a great horror film. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoy this month's film. And do me a favor, keep to the platform if you're traveling alone. I'm Lauren Jane Barnett, and this is the London Horror Movie Club. Music